This podcast is not personal financial advice. You're listening to the Aussie Firebug Podcast, the financial independence podcast for Australians. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Aussie Fired Bug Podcast, the financial independence pod for Aussies where I interview clever people who have already reached or on their way to financial independence. Today I'm talking to a legend in the Australian personal finance space. Noel Whitaker has been educating Aussies in money management and investing for over 50 years. He's probably most famous for his international bestseller, Making Money Made Simple, which has sold over a million copies worldwide. Some of the topics we're covering in today's episode are Noel's upbringing and his first investments, annuities in Australia, lenders mortgage insurance, Noel has some strong thoughts uh, around there and a potential policy change, Noel's thoughts on super throughout the decades, what made him become an author, what's happened to the financial planning industry and how he would fix it up if he were in charge, and so much more. Before we jump into today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our partners at ShareSite, the number one portfolio tracking tool for Aussie investors. ShareSite makes it ridiculously simple with automatic holdings updates, comprehensive tax and performance reporting wrapped up in an easy to use, fully cloud-based system. My favorite thing about using ShareSite is how easy it makes tax returns. Simply generate your tax report at the end of the financial year and voila, you're done. And here's the best part. It's 100% free for users that have under 10 holdings. If you have over 10 holdings and want to sign up, make sure you use my link to get the first four months for free. Head over to aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site to receive this special offer. Even if you're signing up to the free plan, using that link will score you four months for free if you ever decide to own more than 10 holdings within 60 days. Finish tax time with a click of a button using ShareSite by signing up today. That's aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site for your free four months. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is an international best-selling author, finance and investment expert, newspaper columnist, and public speaker, the one and only Noel Whitaker. Welcome to the show, Noel. Thanks to be here, Matt. Now, you've been in the personal finance scene for many, many decades, but for those out there that maybe haven't come across you before, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, mate, and what you're all about? Well, I guess I've been all sorts of things. I've been a banker, I've been a lawyer, I've been a recruiter, I've been a builder, I've been all sorts of things. But I wrote a book in 1987 called Making Money Made Simple, and it was selling 500 copies a month and became one of Australia's top Best sellers. It's now sold a couple of million copies. It's now been in four countries. And every day I get emails saying that book changed my life. So making money made simple was really what sort of got me well known, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely um, the the book that I know you for personally. And I mentioned to my parents actually that I was having you on the show. And they, they said the same thing. I was the guy that wrote that book. Uh, That's so, right. <laughs> so one in six households. One in six households had that book. Had the twenty dollar note on the cover. Yeah, no, it definitely spans the generations. So let's just talk. I'd like to um, chat a bit about your money journey, Noel, and we can just wind it back to the start. Were you raised in a financially literate household, and was there a time that you gravitated towards investing and money, or how how does that all work? My father was the manager of a pig farm, a big pig farm, which is now the whole of Logan City in Brisbane. And he was one of the top pig people in the country. So I was brought up in a rented house on a farm, milking cows and taking care of pigs and things. But I was always a bit of a merchant, like I had beehives and I I used to sell honey. Uh, We had chooks and I'd sell eggs to the teachers. 
So, so, so I guess I've always been a bit of a merchant, I guess. Then I went to Salisbury State High School. You know, I was just a poor old high school boy. And it was the, it, we were the foundation pupils in 1955. And it just happened, I happened to be an incredibly bright class. I mean, number one and number two topped the state. That was the class. And that made me think I, I was dumb. Oh, I figured I'm too dumb to go to uni. That's what these guys are doing. And I joined the bank. I joined the bank because my father always said, you know, when the next depression comes, you want a safe, secure job. So I joined the bank in New South Wales because that was Australia's oldest bank. And I very quickly worked my way up in the bank and I discovered that, well, A, I was one of the few bank officers who always did more than I was paid for. I think that's one of my redeeming features. Andrew Carnegie said, nobody I know works as hard as me. And I think I could say that I'm the same. I've always given everything and I still do. So there's a bit to unpack um, there. You are, you were born in the 40s, is that correct, Noel? 1940. That's right. 24th of January, 1940, the hottest day in Brisbane's history. <laughs> there you go. A bit of a factoid. I often talk about how uh, my nonno um, on my dad's side, um, my Italian grandfather and grandmother, they come across, they uh, made a new life for themselves when they migrated to Australia. And I feel like that that immigrant mentality filtered down to my dad, which filtered down to me. Just those values of when there's opportunity, take it, you know, uh, look after your money and uh, don't sort of waste your opportunities when you when you come to this new country that has all these uh, wonderful and great things. And so you growing up in the 40s, that's straight off the the, the end of the Depression, if my memory serves me correctly or n- near all that so. Well, that was 1929, so I mean my parents would have had strong memories of it. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm getting at. So like was that- Oh, the wartime, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wartime. Yeah, can you, like, w- can you speak a little bit about that? Was that like a, a critical point at the dinner table, um, those sort of lessons that were learned in the previous decade? Were a lot of people afraid that was going to happen again relatively soon after that time? I don't think so. I mean, my my family adored the royal family. They kept the cup of, they kept the scrapbook of cuttings of the royal family. They always said to me, "You must know your place." People from our background can't expect to get too high. Not like judges and doctors; they're a different breed. So you just keep your nose clean and work hard and do the right thing. And I guess that's what I've always done. I guess you know. <laughs> so. But I was ambitious. I mean, the bank offered the staff to do a rostrum course, which is a public speaking course. One person put their hand up, me. That's where I learned public speaking. Uh, they had a competition to get the most sales leads. I'm the one who won it. When they wanted someone to go and lecture at the staff training centre, I was the one who put my hand up because it was public speaking. So I've always been the one that goes the extra mile, always. Can you talk us through your first investment, Noel? When did you know the concept of financial independence and if that was even possible for a person in your situation back then? Because it wasn't like it is today where there is a whole universe of information out there on the internet that has all these stories about these people and you can follow them. What was it like back then growing up in the like 50s or 60s now that we're moving into and- yeah, talk us a little bit about your investing journey and how that looks. Well, I bought my first house when I was 24 and the bank gave me a loan of three and a half times my salary for the whole purchase price and my grandfather made me a gift of £400 for furniture. So I started with nothing. I had no concept of saving. So that's how I started. 
you know, I, I, I bought the house uh, and uh, that's how I got going, I guess. What were interest rates, just out of curiosity, back then? Oh, they weren't too bad about 1964, but about 1974, they got very high. But um, yes, I mean, I really had, had no, not much concept of investment at all. And then in when I was 33, I read the book Think and Grow Rich, which changed my life. Mm, classic. Yeah, and that got me, you know, I played all the tapes, did all the courses, went through everything. And that's when I started to learn about the importance of investing. We always had a great lesson, which is one of the great lessons that when I, I decided after hearing the book that I'd start my own business, so I went into business with a builder and we formed a building company. And for 10 years, we built spec houses. Now and then we couldn't sell a house, so we kept it. And when we dissolved the partnership after a decade of together, making a lot of money, all we had to show were those houses that we were forced to keep because you spend what you get. And that was a great lesson to me, that you always spend what you get. You've got to have a, have a way. That's why you borrow, your salary sacrifice, you acquire shares, you buy property. You're always doing something. You're always paying off something at that time. That makes sense? Mm, yeah, it definitely does. Was there is there a story about or a reason why you picked up that book, Think and Grow Rich? Well, it's a long story. <laughs> I worked for a finance company, and they were just lousy. I mean, I was in charge. That stage, I was in charge of subdivision developments, which meant assessing loans for developments. But they were just mean thinkers. I mean, we're going back to about 1974 here. They had they had a staff suggestion contest. And I said, look, we've got all this big typing pool, typing manual typewriters with carbon copies, which you've probably never heard of. <laughs> if we had electric typewriters, we could save a fortune in wages. What one it is, we should go to the bank and get a money box. And every time we make a personal phone call, we should put five cents in the box. That's what won it. They were just small thinkers. And then I was, I was a very hard work. I was doing well, but... I went out one Friday and never came back because I'd, I'd seen my builders and went home. Come in Monday morning, my diary would be marked, you can't go out on a Friday ever again, you can't be trusted. It was a horrendous culture, horrible. And, I, and then I, just by chance, I picked up the book and my whole life changed. And I made two vows. One vow was I'd spend the rest of my life promulgating the Napoleon Hill principles. And secondly, within 100 days, I'd have my own business. And because... I'd uh, be doing joint venture buildings, and I knew a, a guy who was a builder, and we went to partnership. Interesting. So the the bad work culture, you, you sort of thought that you needed to get out, or you need that you needed to to provide some freedom for yourself because you couldn't see yourself maybe working that job for the foreseeable future. I think all my young life, I wanted to be somebody and do something, and to strike that horrible obstructive culture, I couldn't stand it. That's the point. Yeah, a common theme in, in the fire community as well. People don't like their job and they go looking for, you know, answers and they come across financial independence. At, at that point, so you go into the business and you're looking to build wealth. Are you tr- striving for financial independence at that stage or you're just, you're, you're just trying to uh, help other people spreading the good word and you just knew that you wanted to go into business to, I'm assuming, make some money. Is that right? Well, we went in the business to make money, and the aim was to build wealth in a fairly vague way. But the big turning point again was I'm in the office. We just 
couldn't get leads. You know, your, your phone wouldn't ring. And we'd built a display street in a cul-de-sac. And I went out one Sunday afternoon. I found a couple looking in the window and I sold them the house. I figured you don't do business sitting on your bum in the office. So I erected a big sign Camden Homes on Corfleet and put a hundred up on telephone posts. And next weekend, that cul-de-sac was jammed with people. So I think I started the first display village. It was extraordinary. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we had another, then, I, then, I, then I read the American magazines and they had bus tours. Then I started the next thing, the, the next bus of the available stops, you know, goes out this way. It's- so during the time that you're running the business, are you also helping people with finances? Because I know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you either currently are a financial planner or you were a financial planner in a previous life. Is that right? I sold the business in 2007 for cash. Okay. So you're not, you don't longer have a license. I'm not licensed. I just help people. But I see, I was a banker. Now, I was a banker and I knew finance. I was also worked in between the finance company for another company and we were developing things. So I knew I knew how to get loans through. So my whole sales pitch, if you call it a pitch, I can show you how to own this house. It'll be cheaper than rent. And we sort of started the mortgage broking business as well and got them loans. So... We weren't selling the benefits of the house so much as we can help you get a package to get this. And I get emails now. I bought a house from you thirty years ago. Gee, it's done well with this sort of stuff. Oh yeah, right. So tell us a little bit about the writing. No, were you always writing during this time, or was there a moment that you started to put your thoughts sent down onto paper? I think marketing is right in me. I knew we had to market, and a hairdresser. Every week had a column in the Albert and Logan News, the local throwaway, about hair, about hair care. And I thought, that's a good idea. So I started to write a column on real estate, which I paid for. You know, nothing happens, nothing ever happens at the start. Six months later, people start to talk about it. So I hired a PR guy who got me then a column in the Korea Mail, the local paper. So my experience in that column then led me to a newspaper column. And the newspaper column was picked up by 4BC Radio and they gave us a gig on Saturday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, people think, who will listen to radio at 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning? Well, it's all the most wealthy guys are early risers. It's all the people who, who got home and forgot to turn their alarm off. Uh, it was just before the scratching, so it was the horse racing station and the fishing. So I was stuck between the fishing, then the, there was fishing, finance and horse racing. It was very, very popular. And then one day a woman rang up and said, look, you write good stuff in the paper. You talk good stuff on the radio. Have you got a book? I said, no, but I'll go and search the bookstores and I'll find you a book. Search the bookstores, there's no books. There was big, thick academic books, like six inches thick, you know, all the spieler stuff, how to have a hundred homes on nothing down in you know, a year. There was nothing. So I decided I'd write the book, and that's how it sort of got started. So what year is that? Well, The Big Catalyst, I went to a course in October 85, The Vision Quest, a five-day living course, and you were asked to say what they would say about you at your funeral. What was your mission in life? And it came to me, my mission is to help ordinary people become prosperous by financial education. And that, and that, uh, I'm on that track ever since. That was 85, and I wrote the book in 87. And were you a 
financial planner back then or was that something that you went into after you wrote the book? Well, we started financial planning because we see it was happening. This We're talking now 85, 86. And of course, when I wrote the book, that brought in, 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 in so much business. And that's really the, the start of our financial planning practice. Great. So it was a bit of a, uh, a crossroads. At some point, you finish the business. I know we're skipping around the years, but you get to a point where you, you say, all right, my mission now is to help other people. And you start the financial planning um, business and a good bit of marketing, which obviously turned out to be phenomenal, was you wrote the book to sort of get that going. We also left out the part in about just before that I got mixed up with a developer. My partner and I, a business partner, got mixed up with a developer and we did a couple of successful developments, fairly small ones. Then he got us into a shopping centre outside Brisbane and we lost we lost half our assets. So. We lost half our assets when I was 44 on a bad development, which I didn't need to do because I was set for life there anyway. So all of a sudden I've gone wealthy, not wealthy in the book, and suddenly the book's roaring along and now I'm famous and I've got money, you know, and, and, and I'm going to Sydney every week on the plane to Channel 10 to do, to do live stuff on the, on the morning show on Channel 10 and, and every newspaper in the country. What, what happened in the development? Or you, we don't have to go into it if you don't want it. It was just a foul No, no, no. This, this guy had run a big development company. Then he'd gone bankrupt, which tells you something. And he hired an architect. It was a 13-shop development. Well, you need a, but- a butcher shop must have a back door. He didn't put one in. A hot bread shop must have a certain height. He didn't have it high enough. One of the Redland Shire councils pinched our post office for his own shopping centre. It was just a comedy of errors. We owed a million dollars at 22% capitalising. So we were going, we were facing like five grand a week in capitalising interest. So we sold all those homes we were forced to keep to pay off the debt. Not good. Not good at all. It's terrible. So talk, talk to us a little bit about your investment vehicle of choice. It sounds like you're pretty heavily involved in real estate growing up. Were you always a real estate type of guy or did you dabble in shares? Well, well, I used to sell it. Right, yeah. So you knew it quite well. Well, yes, but I mean, I think real estate's tough. I mean, we had, we had 12, when I was in real estate, we had 12 salespeople. And we thought, well, we'll make some money, we'll find a good buy, we'll form a syndicate. And with full disclosure, we'll buy it for the staff. We only bought one. It was a, it was a total dud. <laughs> hmm. You know, uh, so, and then, uh, and then I got to know shares. And I just love shares now because shares are so easy. I bought a place at Mermaid Beach on the water in 1990 for 500,000 bucks, fixed rate loan of 15%, sold that a few years ago for 867,000. That money in the index would have been worth $9 million. I was going to say that that is a, yeah. not a great yeah. return. I mean, considering no. in the 90s to now, that's going to be one of the lowest returns of like any real estate place I've ever heard well, of. It was about four years ago, I think, but still it's nothing much. It's not, not, terrible not much at all. Yeah. But I, to buy that place, I did have a sixth of a six pack. In the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the adjoining beachfront street, which I sold for 160 grand to buy this thing for 500. The building has just sold for 6 million because mm. it's 40 purchases of beachfront land. The money's in the land, it's never in the building. So as we know, the key to real estate is to add value. You cannot add value to an apartment. You can't do it. No way you do it. Oh, I actually agree. I'm not too sure if you've um, 
follow, listen to this podcast before or read the blog. No, and I all, but no. Yeah, we, me and my wife started in real estate. We were up to three investment properties and then the APRA changed the lending rules in like 2013, 14, and we discovered shares and that was the best thing we ever discovered. But I will say that they've got like their pros and cons, of course, but I definitely lent on that side as well because there's so many different strategies you can do with real estate. But I was always one of those investors that I wanted to add some value, buy something, fix it up, uh, make a deck, do some landscaping myself, like add value. I think that's one of the best things you can do. And that's something that you can't do with shares, which is like a something that I would consider a pro that real estate has over shares. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, so many people just uh, we've seen in the last decade because real estate prices have gone up and interest rates have gone down. But you see the the loaning, the equity, they pull it out, they buy another one, they and next thing you know, they got a few million dollars of debt. <laughs> but it's uh, it's worked out in the last decade, but. I don't know what will happen um, moving into the future. Well, I think a great story is about 15 years ago, my old aunt was getting old and she needed, needed a place. So I bought an apartment in an inner city Brisbane suburb for $216,000. I think well, it was about 18 years ago. I, I've still got it because she hasn't died yet. Hmm. It's now gone to 450000 When she dies, we will sell it and pay a hundred grand capital gains tax. In the index that would be worth 1.2 million. It'd be paying me pay, it'd be paying me 48 grand a year franked, and I wouldn't be selling it. If I needed 50 grand, I can I can stick 50 grand off it. You can't sell the back steps of real estate. Mm. So did you did you reach financial independence? I'm assuming you and your wife at that that stage through real estate originally. And was the what was the strategy in real estate? Was it to get enough properties to pay you enough passive income in rent or were you more of a equities type of investor? I was never really had that sort of a mindset, I think. I just say I, I, I would like enough to retire without giving any spe- any specifics about it. But we'd be lucky. I mean, we bought four hectares at Carindale, Brisbane for $35,000 back about 1975. Now, $35,000 now wouldn't even buy you a post at Carindale. I mean, the house box would be 800000 and that helped us. Then we bought a house in Brisbane on the river, where I'm talking from now, and that's one of the – well, it's probably the best block of land in Brisbane. You're talking two-thirds of an acre on the river with a 45-metre frontage above the flood level. Yeah, right. You know, but you can't sell the back steps. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So you never really had – I mean, it sounds to me like you knew – Sorting out your money was very important, but there was no desire to uh, stop working, it sounds like, and there, there was no, you know, you weren't too concerned about the passive income. It was just more about, i got to sort out my money and my finances. I know that's important to set up. Yeah, and I look back and my most cherished assets are my index funds. And when did you get into them? What year? Oh, when I discovered them, probably 20 years ago, I think. Look, I bought Magellan. That was the best one. I bought fifty-six thousand at a dollar. They went to seventy. I sold a couple of million dollars worth of them. Then, they, then, then, then I've still got twenty grand left. They've gone from fifty bucks to fourteen in the last twelve months. So I'm down a million now. So, I mean, so that was a rare winner. But, 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 gee, I've had some duds. You know, the the index has done index has done nine percent per annum for hundred and twenty years. Yeah, pretty incredible, especially with the. The fact that you don't have to put in any work to get those returns. I know you have to do put in some work. There's no stocks to pick. There's no stocks to pick. You've got every horse in the race 
and I know there's better returns. I just don't have the time. Well, A, I'm a terrible stock picker. All my good picks in real estate and stocks have been luck, I think. Because the thing is, well, well, how do I do it again? Like we had the building company. And I was talking in the hotel to a rep from a finance company. He said, oh, we need to clear these blocks for 30 June to get the, get the balance sheet right. So I bought 20 blocks, interest-free terms, at 8000 a block in Capalabar, Brisbane. They went to $19,000 in six months by the market takeoff. But that was luck, you know? Well, it's, it's – I mean, the data and um, literature that's written on stock picking clearly shows that – it's incredibly hard to do and only a very, very small amount of uh, people can do it consistently over the long term. But it's, I guess it's, it's, it's a bit of a trap when you do, I've never stock picked in my life, but I know people that have, and you can really convince yourself that you're smarter than you actually are. And if you get one right, you can probably, you know, think of different ways where, yeah, I, I, I um, outperform the market, but very difficult to do over a 15, 20, 30 year period consistently. And you don't need to. Yeah. That's the other thing. That's if you're happy, you know, I've, I've really changed my mindset throughout the journey that me and my wife have been on where I, I put my effort and my energy into my, well, I've got a freelance business at the moment. So there's, that's plenty of, you know, things to do in that business. But I think you're, you're a lot better for the, the normal everyday person to try to improve your career and your income and your savings rate, things that you have control over, than you are spending 20 hours after work every week trying to pick the next Tesla or the next Bitcoin or whatever. Look, I gave a speech, a speech last week to Jim's Pools people. You know, they're the guys that come and do your pools. I said, guys, I've got a simple message. Every month, you contribute $2,000 to super as a tax deduction. Nothing else. Just do it. And I showed them at the age of 65, they'd have two or three million bucks. You know, they've just got to start. I had a guy, I had a guy come to my house. He was, a, he was a contractor. I said, same thing. Oh, well, are you doing it? Not yet. No. See, some do and some don't. See, most people don't take the action. That's the problem. I give people books. I love giving people books. See them six months. How's the book going? Oh, haven't read it yet. Oh, yes, it's working. You know, but some do it and some don't. They've got to have the desire, right? I had. I was playing golf today with a guy who's got a factory with a big workforce of sort of factory workers. He's saying, I can't believe these bikes. 200 bucks a week on cigarettes, 10 bottles of Coke a day. I didn't know he reckoned a packet of cigarettes is now about $75 for 25 or something, like $3 a smoke. Very expensive. Yeah, and we'll give it up. Oh, we'll get around to it. Some people just don't care, I think. No. Can we – let's switch gears for a second here, Noel, because um, I thought the super was a good segue into my next yeah. question. It has been 30 years since the introduction of the superannuation guarantee, which was – brought in by the Keating administration, I believe. And you're someone who's been in the industry pre-super and post-super. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I mean, you've got so many decades of wisdom, so you're great for a few of these ideas to just get your thoughts on. Uh, starting off at a high level, what are your general thoughts when super was uh, proposed and how do you think it's gone over the last 30 years? Okay. Well, I'm, a, I'm a good friend of Paul Keating's. In fact, last week I had two hours with him in his office, so we're mates. All right? And we're on the same page. Okay. Super before Keating, well, it was sort of a vague thing. People would come around and say, if you joined a super fund, uh, you could have tax-free stuff. And they'd sort of sell it and it all looked a bit dodgy. So I'm going back to well before Keating now. So there were super funds. 
I didn't know that. There you go. Yes, there were. Yeah, there were. There were. Uh, the they've been pushing the the workers have been pushing for them from about 1974. But Keating was the one who forced through compulsory superannuation. Can I ask a question on that? Sorry, just before you continue. Yeah, of course. So there was super funds. Was, was there a tax advantage for those super funds or were they just basically managed funds? I mean, I thought the whole super was the legislation that was brought in through Keating. But no, you're saying there, that- were, there were super funds and you could put money in as a tax deduction. And it was tax free after a certain time. So when did when did they when did they come into play in Australia? Because they obviously weren't around forever. Well, I mean, when I worked in the bank in the sixties, there was a bank superannuation fund, and all, and all the public servants have have had superannuation funds. But people normally died at sixty five to seventy then as well. But there were super funds of a sort run by the wealthy. And, and they were all full of rorts, I think. I could imagine. I mean, there's so much rorting still well, going on now. Well, there were and yeah. – oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But really the proper superannuation came in with SGC when it became compulsory. Well, I guess it really started when he invented railway – when he put an exit tax on it because about 83, I think, 83, yes, right, was the exit tax – what was that? Well, until then, I think it was about a 2% exit tax. The kitty went on a 30% exit tax. Exit tax on what exactly? 30% on your super. If I retired and then, if I retired in 1982 and I had a half a million bucks, which would be used in, of course, I'd pay a 30% exit tax. You stopped working, withdrew your super and stuck it in the bank. Uh, okay. So if you wanted to do that in the 80s, he said 30%. You have to pay. So he raised that from like bugger all to 30%. Ah, okay, okay. But said if you preserved it and rolled it over, it was tax-free. So in 83, that was the idea. And the pilots went on strike and blockaded Canberra. And Keating said, all right, we'll now have pre and post 83. So if you retired in 1985 with 32 years service, There'd be 30 years of pre and and two years of post. And that's where pre and post came from. So are you saying roll it over to another super fund or roll it over? Well, you rolled it over to an existing fund. And of course, all of a sudden, everybody then said, righto, I'm not going to pay 30% and get out. I'll roll my money over. And they were tax-free funds then. And that's when the industry went crazy. And that's when financial planning got going, advising all these retirees on this super. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you rolled it over and that was managed. So were there many people with a big lump sum? Because it's all different well, big now. big lump they- sum, well, those days it might have been 100 grand, don't forget, but that was a lot of money in those days. But was it with the company like, or are you talking savings in a bank account? Like let's say I'm someone that starts work at 50 and I work 30 years. Well, there were people retiring, plenty of people retiring then with lump sum payments like airline pilots and school teachers and all sorts of people. And they had a choice of rolling it over and into, into a tax-free fund, don't forget. Yeah, yeah. Into a tax-free fund or cashing it out. In 85, Keating changed the rules totally. It suddenly worked out that the 30% tax was very good for future governments, but no good for today's governments. So he put a 15% exit tax if it wasn't rolled and a 15% when you eventually took it. But to encourage shares, he put a 15% tax on the earnings as well. So it went from 0.002% to 0.030% to 15, 15, 15. And Keating will tell you that 
The it was used the imputation system, and the idea of the 15% tax was to encourage people to invest in shares. And if you invested in shares, you paid no tax anyway. Question on that. Back before the um, guarantee, the super, superannuation guarantee, were people allowed to take out money of their super fund before whatever year that, that guarantee was uh, put in place in the 90s? It was preserved to a certain age. I mean, it's, you're going so there was a preservation. There was a preservation oh, age yes. always. It wasn't. Oh yes. Oh yes. 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 Ah, interesting. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So there's always been superannuation, and there's always been a preservation age, but it was the guarantee that was introduced in the nineties. Yeah, ninety two, I think, because Keating was was pushing for it for years. Okay. So back to the original question. Your oh, it sounds like you're a, a pretty big fan of the guarantee system, the super in general. Huge fan. Huge fan. Okay, great. Next one on on the same theme. So uh, Keating, who many have written, uh, is the principal architect of the super system. He says, that's my baby and no one's touching it. That's what he said. Yeah. That's, that's what he it. said. <laughs> that's my baby and no one's touching my kid. Well, there you go. But that's how he puts it. It's funny. I mean, I've really learned something in today's episode because I had it in my head that super wasn't a thing before Paul Keating come around. But now from what you're telling me, it's sort of always been there. He just He just made it compulsory. Is that correct? He made employers pay it. It was available for public servants, wealthy people. The unions have been agitating for it since 1974. I've got a book on my desk there. You know, it, it tells you there's been agitation for many years before Keating. Keating was the one who did it. Right. So he made it popular is what I'm sort of picking up from what you're saying. But it, it existed before him. But It wasn't just- popular. It wasn't popular. Well, because, with the rich people. Well, well it's, it's an on cost for the boss. If you're if you're employing fifty staff, you've suddenly got to got to pay super for them. Okay, that's a good question um, that I had in my head. Did it actually work like that though, or did it cut into people's wages? I mean, when you say uh, I can't remember what super started as a percentage. Let's just say like what six percent or eight percent, whatever it was. No, I think it was it was much much less than that. Okay, whatever it was, three percent. Did everyone get a three percent raise or? Did that three percent come from their current salary? Meaning, if you earned a hundred thousand, let's just make it easy for math. Did you suddenly get a hundred three thousand because the employer took on that cost, or did you get ninety seven thousand dollars of taxable income and three thousand dollars went into your super fund? It would depend on the boss, but normally in award negotiations, the superannuation was taken into account. So you want fifty bucks a week? Okay, well, super might be twenty. You'll get thirty. Yeah. So, so really. It's not really a cost for the employer, is it? Well, I mean, when superannuation went from 10% to 10.5 a couple of months ago, I mean, that was just a cost to the boss, I would think. As far as I know, a boss cannot reduce your take-home pay to when the super, when the super guarantee rises. But when you come up for negotiation, you can negotiate it. Yeah, that's right. And then you're employing someone. Like, you've, you've hired people before, right? So when, you're, when you put someone on the books – you're going to create a whole package that includes super. Well, the, well, the, the package could be including super plus super, hundred grand plus super, or hundred grand including super. Yeah, I get. Yeah, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's not exactly free money from your employer that just got plopped onto your income. It was absorbed by whatever you were making. Well, it may or may not have been. I mean, if your if your package is hundred grand plus super, it's what it is. Negotiation. So, next question on that. Um, so, Paul Keating had some interesting remarks back in 2018 
when he called for a national insurance scheme to support the, support Australians aged 80 plus. And more recently in 2022, I think only a couple of weeks ago, he proposed a covenant of aged care instead of relying on the super system. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as I've, all, I've always been under the impression that super was designed to eventually replace the pension or to significantly reduce its load. But it sounds like Mr. Keating plans, or I know he's not in power, but he would want to introduce another program. What are your thoughts on that? Okay. His main thing at the moment is it must be preserved and that's it. It can't go for house deposits. It can't go for your sick. It stays there until you reach pensionable age. No exceptions. He was also talking last week about a concept where if you have aged care, need aged care and you've got nothing or you've got something, then the government should pay and it should come out of your, out of your estate. As I said to him, there are reverse mortgages now for that. I mean, there's a government pension loan scheme. So people now on the pension can borrow money to have aged care and stuff. So is this what he's talking about with, with the covenant scheme? Well, possibly. I think so. But, but his first covenant is you can't touch it. Was it was the system always designed, though, to replace the pension, or was that not true? Okay. They've been talking for years about how much you, how much you need to retire. And Vince Fitzgerald, one of the actuaries, said you need 15%. So hypothetically, if you believe Vince Fitzgerald, and it's a controversial number, then from the day you start work, you need 15% of your salary to go to your retirement fund, then you'll be right. And Kidding said, righto, 9% from the boss and 3% from the employer and 3% from the worker. That was to be the 15. But then the 15% off the 9% of the boss means there's only about 7.5 and the worker and the government gave them nothing. So, I mean, it, was never, it never became 15. Is it still planned to be 15 in the future? No, no, he's down to 12 now, I think. I think he now accepts 12. Would you be in favour of increasing it to 15? I think 12 is reasonable. Uh, I debate this for some very intelligent friends, and we have two very different views. They say it's their money, let them take it. And I talk about my friend today and all his employers who smoke. If you give those people extra money, they will spend it. And they will come to 65 dead broke. At least now they retire with half a million bucks or something like that, which means they can you know, they won the lottery when they retire. So I'm a very strong advocate for the compulsory super, preserved. And Keating's got, look, his office is full of cards saying, thank you, Mr. Keating. Thank you. Because without you, I would retire with nothing. Mm. There is this whole philosophical debate around the government knows what's best for you versus let the people freely choose, even if they make the wrong decision. Where do you lie in that spectrum? I feel as though you're more on the, the government knows what's best for me side. Well... You know, we, we we took we went to paint package on cigarettes to try and stop it. We were we wear seatbelts in motor cars. If if you let most people don't can't run their own money. And I think if you take money that they won't miss it and eventually they've won the jackpot. Now I know it's debatable, but that's my view. Yeah, I I mean it's it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, you definitely get the two uh sides of the argument. I it's a good point with the seatbelts as well. Like that's a it's slightly annoying, slightly uncomfortable, but it saves lives, right? And then, yeah, it's it's because it is it is people's money. I I would I, personally, I'd be in favour of a system that would tax people if they wanted to take it out earlier. So you're not the government is not going to not let you have access to your money, but if you take it out, 
there is a penalty for that. Just like we do with cigarettes, just like we do with alcohol. If you want to drink and you want to smoke, you're free to do that, but it's a, it's a burden on the healthcare system and we're going to tax the bejesus out of it. I think that would be a, a better way to do it, but I know there's, there's, it's a big raging debate. Well, well, if you did that, the, all the poor people would take it out. You know, this lets poor people have a chance in life. It lets poor people win the jackpot. Mm. But I guess, I guess the argument could be made, why does the government allow cigarettes to be sold even though it's killing people? True, and alcohol kills people, you know, and speeding cars kills people. And, and what's more important? Health or money? I would argue that health is a lot more important. Well, if you're, if you're 65 and you're retired broke, what chance have you got? You'll be waiting years to get your teeth fixed. If you retire with half a million bucks, you've got choices. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. It's just an interesting uh, philosophical, you know, debate that we could. I can see both sides, but honestly, most people, most people can't run their own money, and that's and that's fact. Do you think it's getting better though? Because I feel like that's thrown around a lot. That if we let people access their money before the preservation age, everyone would just go broke. No, the the, the kind of people would need to access it are the kind of people that would just spend it anyway. Mm. Yeah, that is definitely true. I just I, I wonder if that is improving with you know each decade, and I wonder if we can ever get to a point where that is not true that the majority of people are sensible with money. I could be just naive in my thinking, but. Look at Afterpay. Look at look at buy now, pay later. They're, they're, they're all going for that. That's true. That is, that is good. That is a very good point. American Express have just launched with great fanfare a program that you can pay your $3,000 over, off over 12 months. The effective rate's 22%. Yeah, just robbery. It is robbery. Yeah, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. It's. Uh, it's interesting to think about. Anyway, let's let's shift gears to another uh, topic. Have you read the book Die With Zero by any chance? No. You ever heard about it? It's a good book. I uh, recommend uh, reading it. But long story short, in that book- it's, What's the major thesis of it? Uh, it's basically, it's, um, it, it's a bit of a mindset of the goal shouldn't be to make as much money as you possibly can and sort of be the richest man in the graveyard. The goal should be to construct a portfolio that you will live- a great life and do everything that you want to do, but it will take you to your deathbed basically. And you sort of want to get to as close to having zero money when you die as possible. And it's a whole, I mean, there's so many topics in that book. It's a really fantastic book, recommend it to everyone. But in that book, it's, it's written by an American bloke and he talks a lot about um, annuities in the book, right? Now, I've been in the personal finance scene for over a decade in Australia, and I like to think I know a fair bit about um, financial products, but that is one product that doesn't get a whole lot of love in the FIRE community and in a whole bunch of financial-related uh, forums and uh, whatnot on the internet. I haven't seen a whole lot of it. I understand that you're, you're a bit of an expert in annuities. So what are your thoughts on annuities, especially for retirement planning? And is there a reason that they're not as popular as maybe they once were, or in other countries, they seem to be a lot more popular. They're mainly sold now for social security reasons. The government's now got special types of income funds, like annuities, where only 60% counts for the assets test. So the combination of the income stream plus the extra pension that you can get could make them attractive. That's interesting. And I was showing, I gave a speech last week, and I said to the people, you've got $990,000, you're above the pension cutoff point. If you put $300,000 into one of these income products, you'll get $8,000 pension, 
and 20 grand from the annuity, but that's $300,000 is lost on death. Right, that's the catch. You could then make the choice, and it's a valid choice to make either way, if you put that $300,000 in an index fund and get 12000 indexed, you know, okay, you wouldn't have the pension. But I'm very much aware that four years ago, they drastically reduced the pension cutoff points, drastically reduced. And all of a sudden, people are getting the pension but tossed off the pension, and they were screaming. That's very interesting. So there's certain products that don't classify in the uh, asset test for the pension, annuities being one of them. So you can buy, you can purchase an annuity. Well, well, depends on the annuity, don't forget. I mean, they're, they're, they're like luggage. There's all sorts of annuities. Some, they're like, there's a whole range of them. But the government feels the first problem is that retirees, in the government's view, wish to live off the earnings from their capital and preserve the capital. The government thinks that's very bad, and they've, they've, they've instructed the funds to produce what's called CIPRS, SIPRS, Comprehensive Income Products for Retirement, which they're moving, and uh, which there's some now, and they're designed to help you to spend your capital because the government says you should be using your house, which you can do by downsizing to free up capital from the sale or take out a reverse mortgage, in which case you borrow against your house with an ever-increasing debt. That's the reverse mortgage, is it? Yeah. Well, well, if you're 85 and you've got a million-dollar house, you could borrow 50 or 60 grand at 6% in by, in about 12 years. It's going to be doubled. It'll, it'll be 120000 Your house has gone. So they try to – the good reverse mortgage people try to make sure that the loan is so small that the capital gain on your home is more than the loan going up. Yeah, but your, your principal place of residency isn't in the asset test at the moment, isn't it? No, it's not. Yeah, that's that's a whole other point, isn't it? I mean, it sort of makes sense for it to be in there, but I would think that would be political suicide if a politician ever went after that. Well, how do you value it? I mean, you're going to talk about Mount Isa or Point Piper. You know, you're going to say a house worth a hundred grand or four or five million. Wouldn't it just be added on to the to your assets? It's part of your you yeah, know. but but the cutoff point is nine hundred and two thousand for a couple, so nobody would qualify. They'd be gone. <laughs> yeah, especially in Sydney. The cutoff point now is nine hundred two. Yeah, most people's homes are worth that. Most homes in their super are worth a million bucks these days. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I guess so. Back to, the, to like the annuities question. So, do you think that they're not as popular because you, you can get a better return? just through an index fund these days? Like, is that? No, 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 they're different things. I mean, I know that I know of a woman aged 92 who gave it all away except the annuity. So she took out, she worked out how long she'd live, she worked out what she needed and gave the rest away and bought the annuity. The trouble is if you don't buy an index one for inflation, it can become worthless if inflation's rife. And to buy an index one is very expensive. I mean, if two people invest the same amount and one, one has a straight line annuity which means the payments never change and one's indexed it takes the index person 10 years to reach the level of the straight line person but but after 10 years then the index person is rising and the straight line person still has to move right they're much dearer and how like rough ballpark figure I know it probably depends on a whole raft of different factors but let's say I'm 70 too young to take it I think it's that's far too young okay right so let's say I'm 80 and I want some guaranteed 
income. Yeah, we, we can buy an index fund is one way to get it. But these new income streams, you might get a pension or a bigger pension. Okay. So, see, see, every 100000 of assets costs you 7800 bucks. If you can drop $100,000 off your pension, that's giving you a 7.8% capital, seven return guaranteed. On the annuity or the pension? No, no, no. I mean, all of a sudden, I, I drop a hundred grand. I put enough into the annuities. Let's say it's whatever, on the in the lifetime income stream they're called to drop a hundred grand of assets. Automatically, I get almost eight thousand dollars in pension. Ah, uh, see, see, yeah, right. Yes. So you're dropping that, yeah, assets. So you're under underneath the um, nine hundred or whatever it is. So yeah, okay, okay. So there's some like f- not funny. There's some planning that needs to go on to to make to have it make sense. Interesting. It's all discussed in detail in my book, Retirement Made Simple. <laughs> okay, Great yeah, detail. I'll put I'll put a link in the show notes That's as well. Right. That's right. But let's go on to the next topic. Now, you've had some interesting uh, opinions on lenders' mortgage insurance over the last couple of years. I'd love to pick your brains on that uh, if you just want to go into it and just hear your thoughts on on that topic. Well, if you have less than 80% equity, you pay mortgage insurance. There are only, as far as I know, there are two mortgage insurers in the country, as far as I know, not much more. That can be 15 or 20 grand. Now, they keep saying, shop around, get a cheaper rate. So you always say, NAB, say, you go to ANZ, same house, same people, same mortgage insurer, you have to take out a fresh policy. Mortgage insurers, because it's not, it isn't transferable, which is shocking, it means that you cannot shop around to get a cheaper loan. It stops you. And they know that, the banks. Especially uh, of course you. they do. Yeah. And I've pushed this and pushed this and pushed it, you know. No one seems to care. So what would you have to be, to make it transferable? I'll make it transferable. That's all. Yeah, so right. I'm with NAB now. My mortgage insurer is with X. Same house. It's the same thing. Okay, but now the lender is ANZ. It's not NAB. Same house, same security. You've got to be very careful these days. Also, another trick if you refinance with, with a different bank anyway, you may find that you, you don't, the house isn't worth as much. And you may be forced to mortgage insurance. That's a good. That's a very good point. Oh yeah, yeah. So you may say, right, I'm I'm under the eighty percent. I've got my eighty percent. LVR. Yep. Yeah, LVR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll change. No mortgage insurance. All of a sudden, your house is worth about six, well, it's worth less, and 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 you may be up for mortgage insurance. So just be very careful what you do. It probably isn't something that many Australians have come across in like the last decade or so, but definitely in the, the last six months or seven months, maybe that is on the cusp of people, especially buying big last year. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, another topic, you've been around the financial planning industry a long time, so I'm keen to get your thoughts on this. How would you describe the current state of the financial planning industry in 2022? And was there a time previously where the public had a lot more trust? We all know about the Royal Commission that happened in 2017, but I'm curious to know if you think the industry has been on a decline for a while or was there always a level of corruption or mistrust in the 2000s, 90s, 80s, et cetera? Well, I guess every industry has, a, has its cowboys, but I mean, all the guys I know are good, right? The government has wrecked the industry. The first thing they did, well, after, after all, okay, to improve it, we'll make every advisor get a university degree. So guys, 55, 60 with a spotless record, you know, they expect them to go back to uni, 
An asset guy said to me, that's like making me go back to be a lawyer again. It's like making a doctor go back. So they lost so many older guys because of these stupid rules. Then they say, the more you can inform people, the safer they'll be. So if you come in for advice, they've got to prepare a 100-page document for you. They have priced advice out of the ordinary person's, you know, out of the ordinary person's pocket. It's disgusting what the government's done. I am totally with you on this, Noel, and it's it's interesting that you say that because I've had I've had about four or five financial planners on this podcast, and ninety percent of them agreed with you that it's overregulated, that there's too much red tape. They have priced out the people that need financial advice the most. And then I had a, a, another bloke that was um, he was more pro. Uh, rules and regulations. And we need more stricter rules and more regulations, more red tape. And it's so funny because I can understand from like, if you zoom out and you say, shouldn't you want the the standard to be higher in this industry? A normal, a reasonable person would say, yeah, of course, like make it a, a high standard as you can possibly make it. But what never gets talked about when people argue that point is the cost it puts on the consumer. Because if you're running a business, like you just said, if you're running a financial planning business and ASIC are throwing all these regulatory fees at you, where do people think the slack is going to be picked up from? Do you think the business owner is just going to take less profit? Most, More than likely, they're going to pass that cost on to the consumer, which is you and me. And basically, yeah, like you said, if you go to get financial advice now, it is so expensive that the normal everyday Australian, um, especially the younger ones, like in their 20s and 30s when they really need this advice, they can't drop $5,000. They can't afford to drop, you know, a few thousand dollars on um, a statement of advice. And, and yeah, this is, it's, it's such an interesting topic and uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I definitely agree with you a hundred percent, Noel, uh, but it's, it's funny listening to, you know, different financial planners and what they have to say about this part. Well, look, I was talking about a, a good one recently with a fairly, fairly retired client base and they may come in and say, look, you know, I just need to draw, withdraw 15,000 for a trip. Well, in the old days, you'd say, okay, we'll just take it out of that one. You've got to do a full statement of advice for that now. You've got to justify everything you tell them. So if you were in charge, Noel, what would you, what would you do? Because I, like, for me, it seems like it's risky to start rolling back the regulations, even though I don't think that more red tape and more rules and regulations is the answer. Like I mentioned, there was the Royal Commission in 2017, and there's all this funny business that was happening in the industry. So the logical thing most people would say is we need more rules, but it's sort of counterintuitive. It's a bit of an oxymoron. The more rules that they pile on, the less of a desired result that they get, less people get good quality financial advice because they're priced out of the market. Is there anything that you would change like that's it's obvious? Well, but look, back in the 1990s, we had to know the client and give appropriate advice. That was it. And that's really what they're supposed to do. Know the people, know the situation, and give advice that's appropriate. So where did it go wrong, though? Where did it go wrong, This is the industry? Well, it's hard to regulate for that. You know, I mean, for starters, a big thing is the risk profile. You know, they've developed the risk profile, and you've got to ask your client what's the risk profile and give them quizzes and stuff. But if the market crashes... Their risk profile can change. If they have a three or four years of a great market, their, their, their profile changes. You know, I mean, it's um, a lot of the advisor's job is, is, is just simply holding hands. I mean, people need to realise that just that you get in there and you and you and you don't chop and change. 
people, but human nature, people do like to chop and change. What about this? What about that? And chase this one, you know. There's no simple answer to this. It's really not, like I've always been on the side that it's not that hard to learn it yourself, but you've got to have the desire to want to learn it and manage your own money because as the old saying goes, no one is going to manage your money better than yourself. I know you can outsource a lot of things in life, but um, that is an area that I've always not felt comfortable that I didn't know what was going on. Even if, if it was someone that I trusted, I just, I needed to know how investing worked, how to be good with money and just have that really sorted. That's just me personally though. Yeah, but it's normally a fairly standard problem. You're either working towards retirement and you, do, and you, and you don't have enough. If you're 55, the best thing is salary sacrifice to super. Uh, do I pay off a mortgage and salary or salary sacrifice? Well, salary sacrifice is a no-brainer. You know, the older you are, the more you go towards super. You know, I mean, I would like to see an executive summary of one page. You want this and the and I think you should be doing this. And the, and the reasons are. Mm, make it simple, right? Make it simple. Yeah, yeah, totally. I've read somewhere that you were a committee member that advises on ASIC. Is that right? I'm a member of, of their liaison committee and we meet regularly with ASIC's people. Okay. Uh, and, and that's about 14 people. There's there's from various books. There's accountants and bankers and lawyers. and. So you're still involved with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And our job is just to feed back to them what's happening out there. Yeah, right. So are these the sort of things that you're talking to ASIC about? And I, I don't know if it's in the, their they, – they can't actually change it though, can they? It's it's more of the um, bureaucrats and the politicians that make the rules. They simply enforce it is my understanding. Well, it was one very senior ASIC person said to me recently, a thing may be legal but it's still immoral. Right, yeah. Just thinking that through. <laughs> yeah. Buy now, pay later. Yeah, yeah right. So I'm there's – yeah. oh, no, no, no. Look – ASIC is aware of the challenge with financial planning, but again, they're trying to work out how to do it. I had a cheeky question here as well for you. Ask a cheeky question. No, well, because I don't think it's going to be in your area, but I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on this, these Finfluencer guidelines that were released earlier this year and just your general thoughts on unlicensed people like myself discussing financial products to an audience of over a 1,000 people. Well, I don't mind what you tell people. You can tell me what you think. <laughs> no, but I just hate, like, you get these people with a million followers and they recommend something on hot copper or something. I mean, uh, I'm very happy with you saying I think it's good to get your house paid off or if you're getting near retirement, then you should be focusing on your super. I don't think you should be saying I think you should buy BHP or, you know, buy Tesla or something, you know. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It totally makes sense. I guess I come from, you know, I'm obviously very biased because I'm not licensed and now yeah. I've been- Well, I'm not licensed either. Well, yeah, precisely. I mean, and I have been basically muzzled by these new guidelines uh, to delete a whole bunch of content because I just think they go a little bit too far, these guidelines that ASIC uh, okay, released. Okay, well, who muzzled you? Well, ASIC, when they released the new guidelines- they, they said- So did you speak to ASIC? No, but they released them. Did they write to you? No, but they wrote on their website. How do you know you were muzzled? Well, because they come out with new guidelines and they said that unlicensed professionals cannot discuss financial products online. And it was so open-ended- What's that mean? Well, that's that was half my my issue and half of the- A lot but of we're people- We're discussing the, annuities now. We're, we're talking about products now. Yeah, no, look, and that's half, half the issue, I think, in my opinion, is they come out with guidelines- so open-ended that could mean just about anything. I just think 
that 99% of the time you're not going to get into trouble if you don't say anything basically that's not scammy and predatory in nature. If you're just saying, uh, I mean, all, all I talk about anyway is what me and my wife invest in. That's all I talk about. I don't tell anyone to do anything. I talk about what we invest in, but I discuss but, in detail. Do you name specific shares? Uh, no, I, we don't invest in any individual companies. It's all through ETFs. And to ASIC's point, like I just think it's wrong that a regulatory body, even though they say that, they say, oh, if you're not talking you know, about bad stuff, you're probably not going to get into trouble. But then they release these guidelines and say, you're not allowed to discuss any financial product you potentially, if you do that, potentially, I mean, the odds of them actually prosecuting you are so low, but they threaten five years in jail and a million dollars. That was the fine. If they, if they, if they Yes, but, but they're not going to do it to you. Well, but that's not the point, no. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a, a regulatory body should not go out and, and create these guidelines and release them. And because do you know what's happened? I don't know if you, you probably haven't kept up to date in the fire community, but there was literally podcasts that got ended YouTube channels that shut down. And some of these people were fantastic content creators in the finance space in Australia, like some really, really high quality, fantastic personal finance literature got destroyed because of these new guidelines that that ASIC created. And I thought, you know what? There might be one or two cowboys in the space that I can think of off the top of my head, but the vast majority of unlicensed professionals that are creating content online are really good. And I think they're doing a fantastic job. I myself have benefited so much from the American content creators that I followed back in 2013, 2012, that when there wasn't any Australian content creators doing this. And then ASIC come out and they drop these guidelines. And I can guarantee you that if these guidelines were in effect, Back when I first started in 2015 in this podcast, I would have never started this podcast. I would have never started my blog. I would have never started the Facebook group that's up to 18,000 people because I thought, you know what? That is just not worth it. That five years in jail, a million dollar fine, I'm just not going to, it's just not worth it. I'm just going to keep consuming American content and there's just going to be no Australian personal financing. And I, I, and I fear that that is what may happen because I'm not going to be around forever, you know, and, and the, the next generation are going to probably gravitate towards someone their age. So I'm 33 now. So if someone's growing up, they're trying to get interested in finance and they're in their 20s, they're probably going to try to find a younger sort of guy to listen to, right? And I really fear that these new guidelines are just going to wipe out independent content creators in Australia for the next decade or so. Okay. Last question. If someone wants to be better with their money, what would be your number one tip for them? Buy one of my books. But apart from that, spend less than you earn. That puts you in the top 20% straight away. I'm about to launch a new book for young people called 10 Simple Steps to Financial Freedom. It'll be in the bookstores in eight weeks. Well, there you go. Some sage advice from Noel Whitaker there. Noel, I had an absolute pleasure recording this. Thank you so much for- It was great fun. Making the time. Great fun. Coming on the podcast. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this conversation. So yeah, uh, big thanks, mate. Thank you. Pleasure. Big shout out to Noel for coming on the show. It's quite rare that I have a guest with as much experience as Noel, and I really enjoyed listening to his views on the changes to super throughout the years and the impact that additional red tape has had on the financial planning industry. As always, guys, if you're enjoying these pods and want me to make more, consider leaving me a review and rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for me, and I'll see you on the next episode. Catch ya. 
Thanks for listening to another episode. For all the show notes, head over to aussiefirebug.com. Never miss another episode by subscribing to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Nothing in this episode should be taken as personal financial advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decision.